Uh, hi, my name is David Alvarado. I'm the one of the directors and producers and the cinematographer for We Are As Gods. Hi, I'm Jason Sussberg, and I am one of the director producers of We Are As Gods. Stuart is a lot like the great American P.T. Barnum. Well, Stuart is the intellectual Johnny Appleseed of the counterculture. Stuart might be the Zelig or maybe the Da Vinci of cyberculture. It's actually a little bit eerie how often Stuart has been at the right place at the right time. And by the time all the rest of us get there, he's gone on to something else more interesting. Stuart has this remarkable Forrest Gump superpower. <laughs> I believe he said he had to obey. To sense where the frontiers are and then be there. He's like Kilroy. You know, he shows up in the background of every important thing going on. He could see into the future that this technology was going to be a huge part of American culture. You're welcome, Mr. Stuart Brand. It isn't so much that he's ahead of it, he's actually creating the future. Steve Jobs, not surprisingly, was fascinated by Stuart. <laughs> when I was young, the whole Earth catalog was one of the Bibles of my generation. It was created by a fellow named Stuart Brand. It was sort of like Google in paperback form 35 years before Google came along. So many of the ideas that you may find vital either originate with Stuart Brand or were really articulated by him. Ideas that seem at the edge of believability from the environmental movement to the technological movement to genetics. He's also a stubborn bastard. Stu loves being the technophile who has the answer. He had an understanding of that humans were on a trajectory towards greater and technical possibilities. And he made an important statement. We are as gods, so we might as well get good at it. That is the trailer for the soon-to-be-released documentary, We Are As Gods, and this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Stuart Brand is a Renaissance man who has been at the forefront of many societal trends since the 1960s, literally launching the modern environmental movement and mentoring giants of the tech revolution like Steve Jobs. In his latest incarnation, Stuart is trying to bring back the woolly mammoth and other species from extinction. Is this folly or just another example of Stuart being ahead of the curve yet again? Recently, we caught up with David Alvarado and Jason Sussberg, the producers and directors of We Are As Gods, which is about Stuart Brand. In the process, we found out what it's like to have your premiere canceled and learned about the challenges of releasing a film in the middle of a global pandemic. 
David Alvarado and Jason Sussberg, welcome to Factual America. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, so how are you doing? Are you uh, where are you guys? Are you both in New York? Uh, uh, David, maybe start off for us. Sure. Uh, no, I'm in New York, uh, here in Brooklyn. Jason's in San Francisco. So uh, it makes for an interesting uh, work relationship. You know, we're 3,000 miles apart at all times. Um, but uh, he's in a city that handled uh, the coronavirus a little bit better than, than my city did, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I saw something recently. New York was more akin to northern Italy and California was more akin to Germany. Uh, if you're making European con- comparisons. Uh, but what about, uh, I mean, it's it's been an interesting few months. I'm trying not to be glib about this, but, uh, uh, and also the last week or so, I mean, have you been affected by uh, the, uh, the demonstrations and now also the riots going on? Yeah, it's true. I mean, New York uh, is really, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, it really is. Um, so we're getting hit twice, you know, there's the, the plague and then there's the, the riots. And so... <laughs> It's it's insane going outside to get groceries is uh, it's pretty interesting right now. How about you, Jason? I mean, yeah, it's been a you know it just has nothing to do with the film, but it's just been interesting watching uh, more or less a it feels like a revolution happening outside, literally outside my apartment in San Francisco. I live downtown in the Mission District, and uh, it, we just had a major mobilization happen yesterday that shut down all of traffic and. We had tens of thousands of people on the street um, fighting for police reform. So it's um, it, it definitely feels like COVID has sort of taken a back burner of um, ever pressing concern. And right now it's it's everyone's focus on police brutality and, and racial justice. Um, mm. It's heartwarming, but I'm also worried that uh, there's going to be a second wave. Uh, I guess on both fronts in, in, in some yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I think we can we, later in the, uh, hopefully in the podcast, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about your personal experiences and also how this is a, uh, affecting uh, the project. But the, the film, uh, our listeners have just uh, heard a uh, intro to um, that about uh, your film, uh, We Are As Gods, um, gives us a little background, mentions a fellow named Stuart Brand. Now, um, uh, I ask this question every show often because uh, there are a lot of listeners out there who may not know or who are too young to remember certain famous uh, uh, individuals. But uh, uh, literally, I would think this is the most influential person that none of us has ever heard of. Um, so, uh, and, and indeed, I think the film just scratches the surface in some ways about uh, who Stuart Brand is. But David, maybe you can kick us off. Uh, tell us a little bit about who uh, Stuart Brand is. Yeah, well, Stuart Brand is, is an interesting character. Uh, like you say, he, he's he been involved in all sorts of cu- cultural keystone moments uh, from the 60s onward that everybody knows about, but nobody really knows his name. And, and if you do, you're probably already a Stuart Brand fan or you really disagree with him and think he's a, he's a villain. And so he's a perfect character for a documentary in some ways. Um, uh, the, there's... Um, uh, we think that in, in Silicon Valley, especially, he's he's sort of just been behind the scenes and key moments, especially in technology and conservationism. So the film tries to uh, weave uh, that story uh, onto the tapestry of what he's doing now, which is sort of the focus of the film, which is he's trying to de-extinct or rather resurrect extinct species in order to fight climate change, which is uh, interesting to say the least. I mean, I think you made a you make a very good point about weaving this story um, and the, on this tapestry about then what he's doing now. But uh, while you are very artful, we're going to be fairly boring here at Factual American. Take a much more linear approach. Um, 
And I think, David, uh, you and I caught up uh, a little while ago and you sort of described him as this Zelig or Forrest Gump character. Um, uh, well, Jason, why don't we start at, uh, not at the very beginning, uh, but sort of the beginning of when um, uh, Stuart really sort of rose to fame, and that's kind of the beginnings of the 60s counterculture movement. I mean, Ken Kesey, Mary Pranksters, um, you could say he's the founder of the Haight-Ashbury scene in the 60s. Do you want to say a little something about that, especially since I think you're just a stone's throw away? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I just was at Haight-Ashbury yesterday, actually. Um, yeah, Stuart, I, at that point in the late 60s, Stuart was uh, in his late 20s, and that's when he really became a public figure. Before that, he was... Uh, sort of in and around the San Francisco Peninsula area, Silicon Valley, um, what became Silicon Valley, um, but he was a Stanford student. Um, and uh, around the late 60s, he got involved with a character named Ken Kesey, who was um, a sort of a roustabout in the counterculture scene and was sort of uh, popularizing uh, LSD and what became the psychedelic counterculture scene. Um, and Stuart was a lot of people saw him as adult supervision for these young hippies because he was in his late 20s. Um, and so what Stuart was doing was sort of at the periphery. He, he didn't, he wasn't really involved in anything directly, but he was, more, he was just a merry prankster going around with Ken Kesey. Um, and then that all changed in 66 uh, uh, when Stuart started getting involved in major acid tests, bigger and, and bolder acid tests and sort of merging them into uh, these like sensational concerts ma uh, married with interactive psychedelic art. And uh, yet it's, it, it's, it's not so much that they're falling out with that scene, but he, 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 I think there's a part in the film where he talks about he just kind of wanted to be his own man. I guess that's also a, a theme of, of Stuart Brand that... Uh, Ken Kesey was the charismatic leader of this Mary Pranksters crowd, and um, um, you know uh, Stuart wanted to kind of find himself. Yeah, that's accurate to say. I think uh, he, additionally, he he wanted to take agency and, and be his own person, but um, also at the time, I think he recognized that there was an end point to what they were doing. Like Stuart famously wants to start things and then leave it up to the people to move on to the next. And at that point, um, I think he saw that the, the the sort of the writing on the wall that it was this movement that the sixties, the counterculture scene had achieved what it was going to achieve, and now it needed to become something else, and it was time to move on. So I think Stewart just has a really uncanny nose for sensing what's popular in the popular culture, and um, sort of writing that wave, and then um, eventually starting something new. Well, I mean, starting about uh, you know. Uh, on that point about uh, having a nose for, for these things and sort of being always a, ahead of the curve. David, he, uh, then we had this, uh, about the same time, he got this, uh, he had an acid trip and decided that we all needed to see an image of the earth from outer space. Uh, I didn't know the backgrounds of the story. I, I, some might be familiar with this, uh, you know, Al Gore talks about it in An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe talk us through this a little bit. It's basically the beginnings of the modern environmental movement, as, as I understand it. Yeah, uh, it could be viewed that way. I mean, uh, it's interesting because, you know, someone, you know, my age, I just grew up with images of the earth in the middle school 
uh, you know, in the classrooms, right? Like I just knew what the world looked like from a photograph from outer space. But in, in a lot of people's living memory, that was not always the case, you know? And, and the early 60s and just imagine in the 1950s, you know, you, your idea of Earth was either a drawn map or, um, you know, a globe, uh, which, you know, was a representation of the Earth, but it wasn't quite the same thing as seeing a photograph, you know, like a photograph, you know, as we all know, it can have such an impact on people. There's photographs that have like changed the course of entire cultures or wars, if you think back to, the, the, to Vietnam. And so the, the power of seeing the Earth in a photograph was something that Stuart started thinking about during this acid trip. It's just like, well, wait a minute, what does it actually look like? I mean, um, you know, what would the impact be if somebody could see the planet that we live on? Like everything you've ever known could be like captured in one square frame of a photograph. Like what kind of impact would that have on how we think about, you know, the preciousness of, of the world? And so uh, he began a campaign uh, to try to get NASA to release these photographs because, you know, it was already the case that we were, we had satellites up in the air. There must have been somebody thinking about taking a photograph of the whole damn thing. And um, uh, through a course of, of, of asking NASA, of asking congressmen, of he even put on a sandwich board and, and you know, passed out buttons that said, why haven't we seen the whole earth um, <clears throat> to, to places in different colleges and so on. And so he was sort of just a one-man campaign to try to get this photograph out into the public. And so <clears throat> when, when NASA finally did release the photograph, uh, it, it, it was something that uh, a lot of people look back and say, well, that's interesting. It was around the time that we got that photograph that a lot of these organizations started popping up, the beginning of a sort of a new, much more modern era of of conservationism and environmentalism, and even the image of the Earth itself began landing on flags and other things. It became an icon. It became a symbol for this is home, and we're all on the same in the same home together. Let's all take care of it together. So, um, you know, it, it's it's funny because it's not like NASA said, "Oh, hey, Stuart Brand, thanks for asking. Here you go." It wasn't so direct, but it was something that he saw uh, on on the horizon and something that might have an impact on a. On a, in, in a systematic and, and large-scale cultural way. And sure enough, when it arrived, it did have that impact. And so it's interesting because his life is full of stories just like that. And, and when you think about his mission today to resurrect extinct species, he's actually more interested in animals like the woolly mammoth, not just because we, he wants more mammoths, he wants mammoths back on the planet, living in their ecosystem and, and playing their role. He does want that. But it's also because of the symbol, the icon, the image of a mammoth on the Siberian tundra would change how humanity thinks about our role in taking care of the animals uh, under our stewardship. So he wants us to, to be inspired to do a better job of, of being conservationists. And I think then it was long after that uh, uh, that he started the whole Earth Catalog, which I, I was not aware, aware of and it's targeted to the uh, communal living crowd, I guess. Uh, Jason, what, what can you tell us about, about that? Yeah, I guess it was a couple of years after the whole Earth image came out um, that there was a parallel movement going on, not just in environmentalism, but around the, the U.S. and the world, there was a lot of civil unstrife, not unlike what's going on today. Yeah. It was 68, there was the, the Martin Luther King assassination, the Robert Kennedy assassination. 
we were, it was the height of the Vietnam War. There was a lot of distrust in civilization itself. And so a lot of young people wanted to disengage from society and go what they called back to the land. And so Stuart saw a lot of the cities empty, not unlike what's going on now with coronavirus and, and uh, these protests. Um, but uh, what Stuart saw was that they these liberal arts students and you know young 19-year-olds had no idea how to build a water pump or how to grow wheat. <laughs> and so Stuart had put together a compendium of, of information on how to go back to the land. Um, and it was a futuristic take on how to rebuild society. It wasn't just how to rebuild a primitive society, but it was how to rebuild a society that you'd want to live in, complete with electronics and televisions and, and also sort of backwards facing on how to churn your own butter. Um, and that compendium became known as the Whole Earth Catalog. And uh, it came out every, I think, uh, quarter or every half year of spring and fall edition. And um, it, 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 uh, it changed the world. Uh, Steve Jobs called it the Bible of the counterculture. Um, everybody from Al Gore to more conservative people had a copy of the Whole Earth Catalog. It was, it was seen as, a, as just tools for reinventing the world. And, I mean, I think... Um... Uh, and I, I duly note your Earth flag on the wall, and I think your comments about uh, <laughs> your comments about '68 are interesting. Not that this is a political show, but uh, increasingly, when I've been thinking about the election that's about going to happen in a few months' time, it starts feeling more and more like a in that way as the 1968 election. So it, it will be. Uh, I, th I think the timeliness of all this is 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 apparent. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the tagline was access to tools. Um, the title of your film comes from uh, the introduction, doesn't it? Uh, we are as gods and might as well get good at it. Um, what do you, and then even at the end, Steve Jobs noted uh, it closed with stay hungry, stay foolish. Uh, I think those are some uh, three interesting quotes there. Uh, I think you've talked about the access to tools and I think someone else refers to it as like a the Google of its time, but on paper. Uh, but we are as gods and might as well get good at it. What, what did, what does uh, Stuart mean by that? Uh, well, so we are as gods, we might as well get good at it. Um, it it's funny. It sounds a lot like, you, you know, how some people accuse scientists of playing God. That's a, that's an often quoted line in say a, a bad TV movie or show. It's like, Oh, scientists thought they were playing God, you know, we're trying to play God and they created the zombie, you know, virus that made us all turn into, into, monstrous zombies and attack each other well you know uh it, it sounds like that and but i think what what uh stuart is is saying is um you know from the beginning of mankind you know you pick up a stick and you can create fire we we we, we have slowly emerged from the the adolescence of of our species and bit by bit, it's always been by using tools and by figuring out ways to survive in our in our environment. And um, for the most part, the tools have been something that have been beneficial to us, protecting our families, um, getting food, even um, you know, being able to store food. Everything we build is kind of is beneficial to us as a species. But there's been a complete imbalance about how we treat the environment that we're around. 
I mean, we, we, we treat the environment like it's a resource that we can plunder and, and destroy and there won't be consequences because after all, the globe is so big. And, and that turns out that that's, that's very, very wrong. I mean, what we've seen is that humanity has had, uh, by creating more tools and more systems to protect ourselves and the things we care about, we're doing more and more damage to the world. And we've gotten to the point, especially in the last couple of centuries, where we are so powerful, our technology and tools are so immensely uh, unbelievable, our ancestors wouldn't be able to recognize it as anything other than godlike. Right. I mean, we fly in the air. We we can we can use energy to move vehicles. We we can do all sorts of things that just seem like magic, even a, a few hundred years ago. And so, we are as gods to steward. We are as gods because we have the technology and the power to do what we want to do. Um, but we are bad gods uh, in the in the sense in that we are destroying the planet in the, in the process of of looking after those things that we're interested in. So the idea is, well, what if we became good gods? What if we became, instead just of trying to consume energy and make ourselves more comfortable, we did that, uh, but also to the benefit of the planet. We started to restore the ecosystems that we ourselves have destroyed. We started to reverse the extinctions that we ourselves have caused. We started to suck carbon out of the air that we ourselves put in there, thereby causing climate change. Let, you know, According to Stuart and the people who are thinking like him, let's stop pretending that we are ever going to stop you know, consuming and, and, and protecting ourselves and making ourselves more comfortable, but let's do that only with um, the benefit of the planet in mind as well. And so that's the balance that he's trying to hit with that quote, as far as I understand it. And then I guess, uh, David, he amends that quote slightly, doesn't he? I think towards the end of your film, even saying that, because uh, it probably, I don't know, maybe he recognizes it's a bit of a the way that quote's been misunderstood. I think he says, we are as nature or something to that effect. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was interesting. He said that towards the very end of our production. I mean, he, he, he had been saying we are as gods, like you point out, since the 1960s. And just through the course of our film, he started to, maybe it's because our film focused on these issues so much, he was reconsidering it, but he kind of has a, a, a sort of, a, it's not a change of heart. I think he means to say it's the same thing, but I think he finally realize, well, maybe there's a better way to say what I've been saying. And you're right. His idea was maybe we are as nature. You know, he wants to use nature to do things that nature was doing anyway, you know, but for the benefit of nature. So why can't we, you know, take our part into the ecosystems that we've destroyed by repairing those ecosystems in the same way that nature would? Um, so it's, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I think somebody could write a philosophy paper about it, honestly. Hey, well, I think... You know, there's so many aspects to this individual. I think the next one, and as they say in the industry, we should uh, it's better to show than tell. Uh, but Jason, maybe you can lead, give us a setup to the clip we're about to see that's about the uh, uh, the computer hackers, and it's this other side to Stuart Brand, uh, the the guy who really truly was there at the advent of the internet and all these other things that happen in in tech and in the computer industry. Yeah, this is probably what Stuart is best known for, um, at least in, in, in technology and in personal computing. But um, the clip you're about to watch, it recounts the history of the first hackers conference and how that brought together people that would later become uh, sort of lions of, of their field and, and sort of titans of industry. Um, but the, this, this chapter of Stuart's life is a continuation of the whole earth catalog access to tools. The latest tool in the toolkit w was personal computers and they had 
just come out. Uh, the Apple One, I think, came out in 1984. So they were just starting to emerge in the in the consumer market. And Stuart saw this as a potential to give humans superpowers. And so the clip you're about to watch is um, is everybody discussing this awesome new power that was at their fingertips and uh, Stuart's involvement in it. Okay, well, let's, uh, then let's watch that clip. That's my soul is in that. Tools I will give away to anybody. The software I wrote is a desk accessory, so it works on top of any other application. It's this uh, program that allows you to switch very quickly between programs on the map, as I can show you here. Stuart was the first guy to get it. The personal computer was one of the most powerful examples of using machines as tools for independence and that you could build your own world out of this new technology. He saw that hacker's culture shared a lot of values with the Holder's Catalog ideal, that information should be freely shared. Stuart was one of the first people who realized that that actually was a social movement. That wasn't just like a couple of new toys that had appeared. That's a very typical Stuart thing, to understand that there is something there, to take it seriously, to give it a name. As soon as you call a situation something, the people within it start to look around and say, oh yeah, it is something. Yeah, okay, we're in something together. Okay, I think that's a great clip. We've got some great images there. Uh, we're all going to start looking like the guys from the Homebrew Computer Club pretty soon uh, with our lock lockdown haircuts and, and beards and whatever. But uh, we got Wozniak, you got Jobs, you got so many other individuals uh, and, and quite quite incredible uh, uh, scenes there. Let's let's. I mean, we obviously I've been I've been dwelling a lot on the sort of brand's more distant past, but let's bring this more up to the current time because. Uh, because uh, we, we couldn't even begin to touch on everything that uh, Stuart Brandis had his hands in. But uh, uh, as you said uh, early on, the sort of the, the especially as part of the story arc, it's 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 all about this um, de-extinction movement that uh, Stuart is now part of. And uh, uh, David, uh, I, you know, maybe you could uh, ex explain that, and then maybe even why that was the focus of the film, besides the fact that it's it's what Stuart's focusing on now. Um, yeah, so it, um, as, uh, if your viewers um, see the film, they'll know basically it's essentially Jurassic Park, right? Uh, it, it comes with all the moral quandaries and arguments and interesting opportunities that Jurassic Park uh, came with and why it's such a great story, except for dinosaurs. You know, there's no DNA remaining from, from those animals. They've, they've um, deceased way too long ago. But there are there is a lot of DNA for animals that we've killed off ourselves as humans. So woolly mammoth or the Tasmanian tiger. There's actual museums around the world that have you know flush specimens of these animals. Well, you know I don't need to explain to your viewers you know that there's DNA in there that we can collect that DNA, we can sequence it, we can figure out what it said. Well, if we can piece enough of those together and combine them with other um, proximate species. Uh, we could, in theory, given once you solve a bunch of bioengineering problems that would, that would come with giving birth to one of these animals, you could, in theory, create a population of animals that are big enough to support themselves and go back into the ecosystem that they once were. And so when you think about an animal like the Tasmanian tiger that was once an apex predator for uh, its region, there's, there's been no replacement for it. It's just a, it's just become a, 
uh, a less robust system since we humans have killed off that animal. So what if we introduce the apex predator um, of the Tasmanian tiger back to it? Wouldn't the ecosystem just start to go back to the way it was? Um, it might be a little bit different, but the answer some some say is yes. You know, we'd basically be in the process of repairing those ecosystems. So, you know, it's it's essentially a conservation an ecosystem repair effort, and it comes with all those delicious problems that Jurassic Park came with, which is like, well, you don't know the unintended consequences. What are gonna, what's gonna happen? You know, things have changed so much. Isn't the animal different enough from the original animal? And we don't know what will happen there. And there's all these questions that are worth asking. Uh, and how do you, um, uh, uh, how, do, how do politics <laughs> work with this? I mean, do, do we have to regulate this? Who's doing this? Who's deciding which animals get de-extincted and, and, and to what ecosystems they are returned. So, so we're entering a, a century of biotech and um, the world's gonna change as dramatically and probably more than the world changed with the industrial revolution. And so, um, you know, we're going to have to have conversations about these topics. And so Jason and I, our hope with this film is that the film kind of helps people start those conversations. Should we be doing this? Should we not be doing this? What does it look like? And so on. Well, I think that's a very good point. It brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you, because as we all know, any great documentary, you definitely have the main subject, but most great documentaries are about something else, really, when it comes down to it. And so I wanted to ask both of you, and we can start with Jason, since uh, uh, we haven't asked you a question in a little while. Uh, what is What do you see as this film really being all about? Is it about hubris? Is it about folly? What, what I mean, you know, uh, what, what do you think? <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, the film has, we hope the film has many meanings because it's it's a mirror of Stuart Brand, who's a complicated character. Stuart is a guy that you can't easy, easily pigeonhole and say, oh, you do this one thing really well. Um, he's lived an extraordinary life. And so in keeping with Stuart Brand's varied, extraordinary life from counterculture to environmentalism, to hackers, to biotech, um, we, we want this film to touch on many issues, but I, I think in a way, every the one common thread that every chapter of Stuart life touches goes back to that original title of the movie, which is We Are As Gods. Um, I mean, as David so eloquently put um, when he gave his description of the title, but every element of Stuart's life from uh, counterculture taking acid and having a revolution of mind that's acting as a god, being environmentalist, uh, knowing that you can control the fate of the oceans and the tides and the weather, that is being a god. Um, computers, you have the ability to actually take code and, and manifest um, you know, computer technology that actually changes your physical reality. That's acting like a god. And then biotech itself is playing with life uh, the code of life, the same way that the hackers played with the code, computer code, that is acting like a god. So we, we think this is, um, it's sort of, you know, catching people up to the power that we currently have when we all feel so uh, sort of neutered and, and uh, aimless that we actually have this ability to, to be gods. So I, I think if the film had to be boiled down to its quintessence, it would have to go back to the, to the title. And um, well, I was going to take it to David, but uh, Jason, you brought uh, so eloquently, you brought up some very good points that I think uh, may lead to an, a bit of an odd question. But uh, 
as you said, he's at the forefront of all these different movements, uh, mind expanding drugs. But you, you know, you even have an element of the of the film. You don't directly have a cause and effect, but it wasn't very soon after. It was soon after that he went through a bout of depression. He's big on technology, but yet you could argue technology is leading to these shortening attention spans that get mentioned in the film. He's leading the environmental movement, but it's an environmental movement, and this is not meant to, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, but uh, which rejects technical intervention, which is what he's trying to do. So is is he a happy man? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Is any Are any of us happy? I, I think uh, uh, it's sort of an existential question. Um, it, it's he's complicated. It's a complicated, messy answer. He, he in the movie we discuss it in, in detail that Stewart had bouts of depression, um, sort of you know really catatonic sadness that I think would you know we could call it suicidal. His diaries indicated it was suicidal. Um, that's happened a couple times in his life. I think people who are firing on all cylinders, um, you know, tend to have that dark side. I, I know Elon Musk, uh, while not a popular figure to bring up lately, <laughs> um, he, he's, he's admitted um, that he struggled with bipolar disorder. I think there's a lot of people out there who are so prolific in their public life um, that they're they're manic in a, in a way that's been um, rewarded by our, you know, capitalist system that uh, requires people to function on um, firing on jet fuel, but there's a crash that happens at the end of it. And I, I think um, Stuart definitely had that crash and it was tied to drugs, uh, but also just um, in uh, being relentless in his pursuit of what he was trying to do. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot of people who are public figures who do extraordinary things have that ability to deplete their resources and their reserves and they just crash. Um, and Stuart, that's happened, um, I think he said a handful of times in his life, um, different sort of impetuses that brought on that depression. I do think that at the end of the day, Stuart is in this incredibly loving partnership with his wife, who's also uh, his business partner with um, their nonprofit to help bring back extinct species. Um, Stuart has a really great uh, group of friends. They're all um you know, they all are doing extraordinary things together. Uh, so I, I think it's fair to say that Stuart is happy. He's also a relentless optimist in a way when there's not a lot to be optimistic about. Um, you know, a lot of times journalists will often go to Stuart to go get some pull quote of, of you know, sort of Steven Pinker-esque, uh, <laughs> we're better than, than, than the world indicates or the data says or that things are actually on the right end of, um, of the curve. Like even in this coronavirus world, Stuart is relentlessly optimistic about how we get out of this. Um, so yeah, I think he, you know, some, his wife calls him America's last great optimist, which I think is accurate. <laughs> so I think he's happy. That could have been another title uh, for the film. Um, but, but I think it, you've got a good one anyway. But uh, uh, speaking of uh, going on all cylinders and then ultimately crashing, I think we need to give our listeners a break so they don't crash. Uh, and we will be back after that uh, break here. You're listening to Factual America. 
Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with David Alvarado and Jason Sussberg, directors and producers of We Are As Gods. Uh, We've been talking about uh, uh, Stuart Brand, but I wanted to now focus more on the the project, the film itself, uh, the making of it, and some other issues and challenges you faced. Um, David, maybe I can start with you. How did you all get involved with this project? Well, Jason and I have uh, always been interested, as long as we've been working together for the last 10 years, we've been interested in uh, making feature-length or long-form documentaries about science, health, technology, and nature. Those are are sort of our areas of interest and expertise uh, as filmmakers. But we always try to go through a human lens, right? Like stories are about people. They're seldom about uh, things or or uh, information, for example. So we, we love Nova. Nova's great production. Um, but, you know, when you do have a Nova documentary, it's more about the facts or the drama, and you just learn throughout the whole hour-long piece. For us, the, the people are what's interesting. The, um, the, the, the desire for a person to, to accomplish a task and then the antagonizing forces that will try to prevent them, that's what excites us in a story. And so... Um, we, we, Jason had known about Stuart Brand uh, since he was in college. I had heard about him before. I thought he had something more to do with computers than, uh, than anything else. Um, but we, we had learned in 2014 about his effort to de-extinct animals. And so that caught um, our attention. And then when we dove into it, we learned you know, that it's something he's trying to do right now, that there are these people who think he shouldn't be doing it. Uh, and we said, there's, there's just got to be a documentary here some, somewhere, somehow. And so um, we uh, contacted him and for about three or four years, tried to convince him to let us into his life. And eventually he said yes. And, uh, and that's how it began. And so you worked, you, I mean, once he said yes, then he was, uh, he was on the project. You were working with him. Did he have any, does he have a credit beyond being the, the subject of the, uh, of the film? Uh, no credit. Um, he also didn't see the, like all of our subjects, they do not see the film until it's done. Um, sometimes we give the option to watch it before the release, but you know, our last film was about American science educator, Bill Nye, the science guy. And Bill didn't see hit the film about him until we were sitting in an audience in, in, in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. That's the first time he saw it was, was with a thousand other people. And so, um, yeah, there, uh, we, we don't give credits to our subjects, um, uh, but, um, it is still collaborative. I mean, you know, we don't we don't film things that they don't want filmed. It's not a got you production or anything like that. Uh, and um, of course, we we can't the way the way that we do our films. You know, it's not like we're just looking at archival interviews, archival footage, and then weaving interviews with Stuart. We're actually following him around, so we are active participants in his life um, as we film the doc. Yeah, you had to travel the globe, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, uh, went to Siberia. Uh, you know, there's this place called Pleistocene Park. So you think Jurassic Park. This is Pleistocene Park, and um, you know these Russian scientists are are trying to rebuild the ecosystem so that when George Church, the scientist at Harvard, trying to create this mammoth, can release the mammoth, um, it has a place to live. And so we went there with Stuart and George, and it was uh, quite a, uh, an adventure. And Jason, I mean uh, Brian Eno, how did you manage? How did you all manage that? That's incredible. 
Yeah, that was one of the delights of the project, to be honest. Um, I, I've been a Brian Eno fan since uh, I can remember. Um, yeah, I think he's, his work is, 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 a, is so made for documentary. I think every film student in the world uses Brian Eno as temp music um, to like cheat their emotion or to like evoke a film score. Um, and uh, I was certainly guilty of that um, decades ago when I first started getting into filmmaking. Um, and as it happens, Stuart and Brian Eno are collaborators, um, of course, because Stuart <laughs> has always touched just random individuals since the beginning of time. And so those two um, are were friends from the whole Earth catalog days. Uh, and I, um, they actually are working together on this uh, sort of the last chapter of the movie is this this clock that's in West Texas um, called the Clock of the Long Now, which is a, a monumental engineered artifact that is meant to make us meditate on long-term thinking. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like a, um, a philosophical art piece and um, to, to get humans to not only think about their lives, their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives, but to think in these 10,000 year increments, which is how long civilization has been together. And so Brian, you know, um, and Stuart started cooking up uh, this idea along with engineer Danny Hillis on, on, on what this clock is gonna look and feel like. And um, Brian is the, um, the, the soundscape, uh, I guess you could call him a soundscape artist or engineer of what the clock will sound like. And so they're on the board of this this non this foundation called the Long Now Foundation, which is uh, in effect building the clock and is um, maintaining. They hope to be maintaining civilization for ten thousand years, or getting humans to think that we need to maintain civilization for ten thousand years. So we interviewed Brian as a subject in the documentary because they're just very good friends, Stuart and, and Brian. But also, Brian, you know, he's he's a uh, an erudite guy he's not just a mm -hmm. punk rocker who wears uh you know silly outfits and and performs um in in amazing bands he's actually he's a very scholarly guy going to his studio he just has books and books on his wall this library of um of just varied interests and so he's a he he kind of acts as a de facto historian in Stewart's life so we bring him in in the interviews to explain the environmental movie, to explain hackers, to explain the clock along. Now, Brian's fingerprints are all over the movie. Um, and so when it came time to come up with a score, um, we asked him and uh, his initial answer, Stuart actually did the asking for us, was I don't have time, I've retired from music. Here, well, I'll let you play with my library and if you come up with something great. Um, but then that changed, he got into, he got really invested in the movie and so, um, ended up coming up with 25 original pieces of music uh, that he found inspiration from the movie to build and um, shared them with us. That, that, was, that was a really great turn of events. And, and since you brought it up, I hadn't mentioned it, but the 10,000-year the, uh, the, the clock. I mean, and it isn't, I think it's near Van Horn, Texas. I mean, is anyone ever going to see this? This thing's in, built into the side of a mountain. How is it, do they plan to have visitors? What's, how is that going to work? Do you know? Yeah, it's meant to be a public uh, project. So obviously it's not um, ready for the public quite yet. But the idea is that 
it is going to be a pilgrimage site that people have to go to um, and get to go to. So I think it was it was proposed to be originally in the in the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, in Nevada, um, uh, but they they ended up building it on um, actually on Jeff Bezos land in in Texas. They got it as sort of a, a donation from Jeff Bezos and it was, it's funded by Jeff Bezos. We don't bring this up in the movie. Um, but uh, th- that is sort of a, just an accident that it happens to be in this area that not a lot of people can access, but they will eventually have roads out there and a system for transport. But it was, it was really kind of, it really was a pilgrimage site in America. You can pretty much get anywhere within a day. But um, that was, that was, we had to fly into West Texas, drive, um, or yeah, where, I don't even recall where it was. It was actually. Flew um, into El Paso and then drove a couple hours to Van Horn. Wow. And then from Van Horn, (laughs) a system of roads. Yeah. So it was like, it was like, I think it was, we had to wake up at like three o'clock in the morning to get there by sunrise. It was, it was, it was a pilgrimage. Hey, um, hey, last point I wanted to raise sort of on the, on the, the film itself is, and I'll, to, uh, direct this to David. I mean, um, how did you come about with the, the the story arc? The way you were talking about earlier about weaving this the story on this tapestry that you 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 made uh, was that a joint collaborative effort that you guys came up with, or or was that whose idea was that? Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, we have a very collaborative process, uh, which and at the center of it is our longtime collaborator Anuka Lilia. She's an editor here in New York who's just a fantastically talented person and has a real um, eye for um, what's the emotional curvature of stories and, and how characters can be developed in a documentary. Um, and, and we work very closely. I mean, some, some directors do just sort of hand it to the editor and, and show up for reviews. We are in the edit room um, with her um, uh, and our other edit team. We have a, we had a large post-production team. Uh, and, you know, um, even our producers, they we're all like sitting around in a room in our, in our New York office trying to figure out how to bring the story together. And so it's a very organic process where we allow the footage to tell us how this can be arranged. And so given the immensity of Stewart's uh, life, his biography, you know, it was a process of figuring out, well, we have 90 minutes here. Um, that's that's the bucket this thing needs, needs to fit into. Um what are the storylines that matter most to us? And then, uh, so what do we need to eliminate? And then, then once we have that figured out, how do we combine those in a way that makes sense? And some of it is uh, based on experience, like we know how stories come together and that's a process. But also a lot of it is an intuition, honestly, just trying one version of, a, of, of, a, of an edit of a 90 minute film that we think could work and then seeing what doesn't work about that and then rearranging, you know, whole scenes and what's inside those scenes. And, you know, how does this scene go to this scene? It does, but not if we go to this scene. So why don't I do this? You know, it, it's an it's a, it's a process that just always takes us a year or so to finish. And um uh, it's definitely a, a large part of the cost, but it's also part of, uh, I think, what makes our films so special. You know, the uh, amount of love and blood and sweat and tears we pour into it until the film speaks to us and tell us tells us like how it best fits together. Well, I mean, I think that's a that bring, nice segue to the what I wanted to talk to you about next, which is speaking of finishing your film in blood, sweat, and tears. Um, is it right? Uh, you finished, uh, Jason, I'll throw this one to you. You finished the film the day South by Southwest was canceled. Is that right? Where you were going to, you guys were going to premiere this film. 
yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, you know, every film is very difficult to finish and uh, you never know where it's going to go or what the future holds or how audiences are going to react with it. But you always get to take it to a public audience to, to test it. And so this film was particularly, um, you know, difficult to finish just because it took so much time and, and the story was difficult and Stuart's life was so complex. We just wanted to do justice. Um, but we ended up literally, we were sitting in Skywalker Sound in, in Marin, California, where we were working with this, this legendary sound mixer um, named Pete, or no, sorry, um, yeah, sound mixer named Pete Horner, um, who's done Jurassic Park and just amazing titles. And he's working on our little boutique indie movie. Uh, um, and uh, it was lunchtime of the last day of the sound mix after a nearly three year journey where we're about to print the movie to send it to South by Southwest weeks after it was actually due. <laughs> I should mention that um, everyone else turned their movie in, in February. We are turning our film in on, on March 6th. Uh, and uh, we get a, a news alert. Actually, David got a news alert on his phone from a friend who said, condolences, sorry about South by Southwest being canceled. And we kind of dismissed it. We're like, ha, ha, ha. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It's not canceled. And um, we went to lunch. And uh, this, uh, where we have four hours left in the sound, sound studio before we print. And uh, we learned it was canceled. And so we then spent the, for the time that we should have been spending lavishing attention on the last bit of the mix of the movie um just in the hallway frantically fielding phone calls from our investors our producers Stuart himself the other subjects everyone was sort of wondering what the hell happened and so yeah we, we finished it the day um the day it was canceled i mean it's it's not nearly the same but there's a generation out there that says they know where they were when they heard the news that JFK had been shot. I know exactly where I was when I heard that South by had been uh, canceled. It's, I was just down the other side of this, this house actually, because we were so I, I was supposed to be doing this uh, interview with you face to face. We had arranged to meet in Austin and I still ended up going to Texas, but uh, scrambled to get back here to the UK, I will say uh, in the end. But uh, uh, one thing it, uh, David, you, I, I know there's the article in Variety and you, you talked about the importance of festivals, especially for indie filmmakers. I mean, uh, do you have any further thoughts on that? Or, I mean, the landscape's constantly changing and we don't know how it's going to end, but uh, any views on how, how it's looking like on, on that front? Well, you know, it's, what's funny is we, we uh, take personal conferences with other filmmakers in our community all the time during the course of this pandemic to ask each other, What's going on? What are you guys doing? What are people saying? What are your sales reps saying? And so on. And it just seems even today, everybody's just as confused as before. And the source of confusion is, is that festivals have traditionally, for independent filmmakers, have tradi traditionally been you know, the only path to getting the amount of attention needed to leverage that against a, a, a sale and try to get the sale you know, to be a higher number. And so... Uh, without the film festivals, because there is no other real system, um, it's been very hard uh, to get back to it. So the question has now become, well, do we show these films online and hope that that'll gain the same amount of interest? Or do we wait until the pandemic is over, essentially waiting on science to create a vaccine? That's your new 
distribution plan <laughs> to, to wait on a vaccine. So um, uh, some people, uh, it turns out, can't. You know, they need to get the film out. They'll take any number, you know, take a smaller number from a smaller distributor and worry about when that could actually be shown later. And others, uh, I think Jason and I are fortunate in that this film isn't very uh, tied to our times. I mean, I think it's a, a large film that can that could be very um, interesting to somebody in 2021 or 2022 as much as it, did, as it is in 2020. So we're actually taking the stance of, well, let's just wait until the world's back to normal and maybe release the film into that world. Um, but uh, who knows? I mean, people are talking, and it could very well be true that... Um, you know, the, the entire film industry might be changed from this. I mean, why are we so tied to film festivals? Um, why aren't we working with buyers sooner uh, instead of selling after we're done? Um, they're all good questions, and, and we'll see. Only thing I would say is I guess Stuart would tell you to take the 10,000-year horizon, basically. Yeah. I'd be thinking yeah. in terms of 2021 <laughs> or 22. Uh, but so so this, so this just get, so our listeners know, is, is, this, is there a place where people can watch the film yet? Right now, no. Unfortunately, um, there. You know, we we we're we're not showing it in film festivals. We are applying to new ones in 2021. So, you know, essentially, uh, if you go to our website, weareasgods.film, uh, you'll be able to to keep up with the latest information about the film. Okay, well, that's how we usually end end the podcast. But uh, thanks for th- sharing that because I think that's a uh, we do like to know how we can can follow you guys. Um, I mean, it's, it's the same variety article you talked about the. You know, uh, we've talked about distributors. uh, How do your investors feel? How does Stuart feel about about all this? Uh, Jason, you want to take that one? Yeah, uh, I think everybody is crestfallen that we put all this time and had this plan and we weren't able to get the film out. So everybody has feels just rotten about how this film has has met the world which is it, it hasn't met the world um you know just to, for a minute talk hyperbolically but we we call it a, a stillborn movie because it's here it's just not available so it feels it's just it's just there's a ton of emotion wrapped up into this but everybody's been really understanding the investors are fully on board um they they take our lead on this um our uh, our partner on this strike films has just been nothing but supportive and understanding um you know we we can't really we, we we're only one we are but a cog in a larger system um the system of of, of the in fact the film industry is 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 just a, a similar cog in a larger system so we can't really dictate the terms we can't really speed things along personally so there's no culpability they've just been very understanding stewart is i think He's really Stuart loves the movie and loves participating in virtual Q and A's with uh, with um, private screening groups that we've we've shared the film with, uh, including his foundation and a few others. But um, I think he's he's impatient. <laughs> uh, he he wants to get the film out there, um, but he understands that this is a it, it's going to take its own time getting out into the world. But um, you know he's he's going to be eighty three this year. There's a biography being made about his life um, by the journalist John Markov, um, and so I think he's just ready <laughs> to 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 share this chapter of, of his life. and And he loves these virtual screenings where you can um, watch the film and then 
rewatch it and pause it if you didn't hear it and think, you know, contemplative thoughts and make notes. And so he, he actually loves the, uh, the streaming of the movie and thinks that it should be um, available to, to people. And we agree with him. We should, we got to get this film out there so that people can enjoy it, but it has to take its own time and we have to share it in the theater. And so I think we, it's, it's hard to believe, but we've already uh, come to the close to coming to the end of our time. Um, one last uh, question for you. I mean, what are you, any next next projects? You guys have collaborated on some great films so far. Is there is there another one in the works now? Yeah, we're we're working on a few. Uh, we're developing two series. We're not sure if they'll take off, and then we're also researching two other potential feature docs, all science, health, technology, and so. Um, yeah, we're we're really excited to. to figure out how to uh, begin a project in, in, in a pandemic world um, such so that we can take advantage of our time locked away in our apartments and do the research. But then when the world is ready, we can just rush out the gate, you know, running. Well, as we'll, we'll be watching uh, watching this space and uh, we'll certainly have links to your, your websites and other uh, maybe social media accounts in, in the show notes. Um, I just wanted to thank you, uh, David Alvarado and uh, Jason Sussberg, for coming on uh, the Factual America podcast. It's been it's been a, a lovely and very enjoyable hour uh, spent with you. Uh, it, I also want to highly recommend. I'm one of the privileged few uh, uh, beyond Stuart Brandon and his few mates to have actually seen this film. And uh, thanks for sharing that with me. It it is excellent. I I don't just say that. I really really enjoyed it. And I'm sure when it comes out, you've you've got a you've got a winner on your hands. So uh, I wish you the best of luck with that. Um, again, just to remind people the films we the film we have been talking about is We Are as Gods, and David and Jason are the directors and producers. Um, also, want to remind you to remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And this is Factual America signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.